Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Toronto fans. Welcome to episode number 291 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is October 21st, 2013. Got a big show for you this week. It's a little different than a regular show. With travel day for me, so we're not doing the show in the morning like we normally do. We're also not having Coach Harvey Hyde, who's on secret assignment. And we also have Dan Weber, who's traveling back from the Midwest. Is not going to be on the show either. So what are we going to do? Why don't we get Gerard Martinez, uscfootball.com, National Recruiting Analyst. He loves football. He wants to talk about this team as well. We'll all talk about the game. We're going to talk about the coaching search a little bit and talk about recruiting. Gerard, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. I have uh, been involved in every aspect that you speak of, and uh, I hope I can, uh, you know, I wasn't the first choice. I wasn't the second choice, <laughs> but I was like Pete Carroll, the third, maybe the fourth choice for the podcast today, and hopefully I can bring it like Pete Bob for USC. Pete, Pete certainly did, so we'll hopefully you can too. And uh, just to let you know, if you have questions or comments, podcast at uscfootball.com. That's our email address. You can call us at 206-888-6755, or you can go to peristylepodcast.com and leave a voicemail right on the page. We're going to try to – we got a lot of questions this week. We're probably not going to get to – all of them are or as many as we normally do because it's going to be a different format. Some of them are very specific for, for Dan or Coach. We're going to try to get to the ones we can and, and more top of, talk about topics of what was going on um, you know, in this football game. There were some really interesting topics that you guys wrote in about, and, uh, and I, you know, I want to talk with Gerard about them. And, we'll, and then, like I said, we're going to talk some recruiting stuff too at the end where I'll talk about the coaching search a little bit. If you haven't seen our coaching hot board, that is certainly something to see. And also we have a coaching poll, our second head coaching poll. And Ed Orgeron won the first one, and I stopped it after on Sunday, put up a new one, and he's no longer uh, winning that poll. But Kevin Sublin was actually winning before USC beat Arizona, and uh, Kevin Sublin has a lead again. But we'll talk about all of that stuff. And uh, Gerard, I guess here, there's one really interesting uh, topic, I guess, that Pat wrote in, and I think we can start off with this because it's, it's kind of been – in my mind, too. Pat said, USC was very successful at running the ball on several early drives. What did Notre Dame do to make that unsuccessful, or why did USC stop doing what has been working so well? I thought that was a great point. What do you think, Gerard? Yeah, USC ran the ball surprisingly well in the first half, quite frankly. Uh, Without Trey Madden in there, without a healthy Justin Davis, you know, Silas Red had, had done some good things at the end of the Arizona game, and they were able to basically cap that game off by running the ball and running the clock out. And the one thing USC's really struggled with the last two years is being able to run the ball when the defense is expecting to run. Uh, they've been terrible on third and three, third and two. I, I think USC, you know, I haven't crunched the numbers, and I know we have some guys on the Peristyle that do great numbers crunching. I would like to see statistically where USC is now in terms of throwing the ball on less than third and four. Yeah, you tweeted, I have to think it's pretty high out. percentage. Yeah, I think you tweeted that out. You're like, why does USC never run the ball on third and short? They just refuse to. They can't or they just never want to. 
And that's the thing. They, they either can't, and I think because they can't, they get scared away from doing it. And I think that sort of answers the question. Notre Dame did a good job of stopping USC on second down running the ball. USC stopped running the ball a lot on first down, and they go and they pass on first down and not get yardage on first down. Then try to run the ball and try to get five, six yards running the ball on second down, and Notre Dame was playing that, and they did a good job of stopping them on second down running the ball, and then you're in third and long. And it just didn't look like the USC had a plan, and it seemed like the flow of the offense definitely, in my eyes, was hurt because they weren't able to get a lot of positive yards running the ball on the first down because the offense sort of changed. And also, I think Notre Dame also made adjustments as to, we don't think you're going to beat us passing the ball. And so they started to play the run more uh, in the second half, and you saw that adjustment, an adjustment that – Man, we have seen the past two years USC not be able to make in the second half. The yeah. team that they are in the first half, they are the same team in the second half. <laughs> and if and if their opponent adjusts and starts to change things and starts to improve in the second half, USC stand in there flat-footed. Yeah, Orgeron made a good point, and I, I tweeted this one out too. Just watch our Twitter. If you watch our Twitter feeds during the game, you can get a lot of information there, what we, like, what we think at least. Uh, but I think a lot of what happened was, and, and he mentioned that, there were some third and long situations. I would take it a step further. Their first down plays in the second half were awful. They were almost all negative plays. And they were, yeah. there wasn't a penalty, loss of yardage. I mean, there was just – they always set up to be the second and long thing. And then it seemed like – and fans aren't going to like this, but there was a little bit of the Lane Kiffin factor coming back in, like the third and nine, you know, kind of run up the middle sort of thing going on. There was some of that, but I think a lot of it was set up with just poor – execution and, and poor results on first down. Exactly. And, and with going into the third and longs and being conservative, there was some times there where they maybe should have been a little more conservative in trying to just get yarded so they could play for two downs because there were some instances where they had, you know, really good field position for a lot of that fourth quarter. <laughs> Notre Dame could not do anything. It was very obvious that Hendricks could not pass the ball. So USC played the run and they really pinned Notre Dame in their own field for quite a lot for quite a lot of the first qu- uh, fourth quarter and that allowed USC to get good field position and you were in that kind of gray area of do you kick the long field goal or do you, or do you go for it on fourth down and I think there were some instances there where they should have just tried to get five six yards on third down and maybe set themselves up for fourth and short but having said that it goes back to you know running the ball on third and three you know on fourth and two are they still are they able to convert that because they can't run the ball? If you cannot run the ball on short yardage and you're a pro-style offense, you don't have a lot to go to. I mean, it's, if this was, you know, air raid offense, four or five receivers, then you could see USC being a passing team on even third and short. You're trying to spread the field. You're using space. You're using your receiver windows to be able to get those guys open and you're going to throw the ball. But USC is a pro-style team, so you have a fullback out there. You have at least one tight end. Um, even in 21 personnel, you've got a tight end out there. They're not throwing to the tight end. So you've got a lot of guys out there that aren't doing a whole lot, and you're not running the ball. So what are you doing? You're, you're going and you're trying to throw the ball on third and short to two-man receivers. Two-man routes, there's not much more going on than that, and it makes it very difficult to be able, especially on a shorter field when the defense starts to get compressed a little bit, to, to make those uh, conversions on third down. So 
it's, it was a problem with them last year. And, that, and the big thing recruiting-wise was able to you know, bring in some power backs, be able to bring in some guys that had some size. Last year, obviously, with Moody McNeil and Silas Red, those guys are not necessarily power backs. They're not going to be able to break a lot of tackles on their own. They need a gap. They need a hole. They need the offensive line to really do well. And they didn't have that last year. This year, you got Justin Davis, and you get Ty Isaac in the mold, and you had Trey Madden. You thought, okay, even if the defense makes a good push, maybe they could break a tackle and they could still get a first down on third and two. Well, you've got Trey Madden out of the game. Justin Davis, I think he got one or two carries, and he was out of the game. So you're kind of stuck with where you were last year with Silas Red. And Silas Red, who had a great game. He had one of his better games as a Trojan, still is not necessarily a power back, a guy that's going to be able to break tackles and make something happen out of nothing. All right, well, that's one topic. Uh, let's go to – this. Was, I thought this was a voicemail question that I thought was a good topic. Um, we'll play this one for you. Hey, Ryan, this is B from Mississippi. Um, I want to add a question for Dan Weber. I think this uh, game was more of an indictment of the coaching staff than the players. Uh, certainly the players are playing hard, but it looks like they just don't have an answer uh, in order to get this program back on track. Um, the defense, I mean, Tommy Reese, it was a good thing he did get hurt and without trying to sound cruel, but they just couldn't stop him anything in the passing-wise in the secondary and the defensive line just wasn't consistently getting pressure. And then on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, everyone saw that second-half debacle. Uh, it just yeah, I know there were injuries, but it just doesn't seem like they can get things going. I think it just – it seems to me like there needs to be a new coaching staff come in and just get things started. I just want to know Dan's opinion on that. Thanks a lot, and uh, fight on. Coaching versus players. What do you think, Gerard? I'm one of those guys that – I'm very big on X's and O's versus Jimmy's and Joe's, and I think X's and O's went out. I think with a lot of situations, you take UCLA, for example. <laughs> UCLA is a, a pretty good example of a coaching staff going in with basically the same players as a year before and trying to change the culture. It's not just about schematics. It's also about just the philosophies, the standards that you put forth, and being able to win with guys that – in a previous year, a previous season, didn't look like they were good football players. And you see that. And you see how that's kind of digressed with USC. The offensive line play has, uh, has regressed so much, you know, in the last couple of years. It's pretty amazing. And that, you know, even from a strength and conditioning, you know, standpoint, uh, you, you start to see a lot of questions as to, you know, USC's linemen are not able to handle these guys physically. You know, what's going on there? Is it all just a matter of technique or is – you know, some of it just actually a physical question. So for me, yeah, you know, coaching is, is a big deal. We saw it with Pete Carroll even when he came in and you had a guy like Kareem Kelly who, you know, by that time in his career was already coming in, I think, in his junior season. And people were writing him off as just a track guy. No, he's just a track guy. He, he's never going to be able to do anything for USC and contribute um, for USC as a, as a football player, as a wide receiver. You had, you know, Sultan McCullough. Um, you know, Justin Fargus, the guy who, you know, came and transferred in from Michigan after breaking his leg, people are saying, ah, you know, it's the end of his career. He's just going to USC because it's close to home. He's got nothing left in the tank. And these guys come in in 2002 and they look like rock stars. You know, but Cream Kelly's running down the field, running past people like they're standing still. Salt McCullough's all of a sudden starting to make, you know, big plays in the running game. And Justin Fargus did enough uh, towards the end of his career with Pete Carroll coming in that he was able to get himself into the NFL for it. And so, I mean, those things you see players transform themselves 
And it's not just the players all of a sudden getting better. It's the coaching that comes in and the philosophy and, and, and really just the system and the culture that they put forth. So I tend to say with games like this, yeah, there's, there's some issues there, and um, they've, they've definitely got to make some changes. And I think that's pretty much where the program is. And even you know after the point of uh, Lane Kiffin being dismissed, I think that was probably the majority opinion among USC fans. Yeah, and I, I agree. Uh, Juan wrote in, I blame execution by the players or his coaching. There's no way uh, we should have lost this game. I think originally when you saw the team struggle at the beginning, I think people said, oh, Cody Kessler's terrible, Max Wittick is terrible. Uh, there were certainly people that were doing that. There was a lot of people that just said it's the schemes, it's the coaches, it's the X's and O's and not the Jimmys and Joes. Uh, and, you know, now that there's been a coaching change and Ed Orgeron came in, it looked like he did a lot of the right things. He's, he's changed the philosophy, he's changed the culture. Um, but they, there has to be some blame on the players here, too. I mean, I think there's certain guys getting beat, uh, you know, one-on-one individual battles. Uh, I don't think Cody Kessler played all that well, but I'm not in the camp that didn't think he could play. I think he can play, and uh, but it, it, to me, it just when you saw the beginning of that game, how efficient they looked on offense. And it, that, I guess that's what's most frustrating about this team. For four games, the defense is lights out. And yeah, you could talk about the competition and stuff, but they, you know, they held Boston College to seven points, and Boston College, College scored thirty something against uh, Florida State, who's the number two team in the country right now. I mean, they, there were some good things that happened on defense, despite who the opponent was. Even if you're playing against the scout team, just to be able to shut guys down like that. That says something. And then the defense is getting gashed for a couple games in a row. Same thing with the offense. Looked really good last week against a, a pretty decent you know, Arizona team. And then it just couldn't do anything. And, and after looking like Cody Kessler was very comfortable, like the offense was running very efficiently, the running game was going, they, they moved the ball a lot better than the number of points that they had. And then they stopped moving the ball altogether. So it was like they, they had these points that they, yeah, you just felt like, if you leave a few points on the table, it's okay because the offense is moving. They'll be able to score whenever they want. Well, then that stopped, <laughs> and they couldn't do anything. So you ended up with 10 points in that game, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I think, Gerard, I, I do think a lot of it was on the coaching, but at some point, there's some players that were doing some wrong things too. No, definitely. And I think, you know, first and foremost for Ed Ergeron, there's only so much he can do at this point. You know, this is not necessarily – uh, you know, promoting him to be head coach next year because the circumstances aren't there for him to win this year. But we have to understand that this table was made, this 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 bed was made, and it wasn't necessarily his. It wasn't, you know, as as I think Bill Parcells said once, you know, uh, you know, if 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 I'm going to be the cook, then I want to go and shop for the groceries. And and this assistant staff is not necessarily his staff. It's not his scheme. So you can't necessarily put it all on just him. But I think as as a as a staff, the inconsistencies are the things that are the most mind boggling of all. I mean, you talk about just the first half and the offense looking efficient. The offense really, when they opened the game up, it looked like the way they played Notre Dame 2011. They're running the ball. They looked physically better than Notre Dame up front. They were moving Notre Dame around, and they were gashing them in the run game with Silas Red, who, you know, that's basically the first full-time uh, game that he's come into. He The first game that he started this year after being injured, uh, and he looked good, and, and you just thought, wow, okay, yeah, they're going to be able to score points in this game. Is the defense going to be able to show up? But the inconsistencies there – 
they've, they've shown their reared their ugly heads, you know, not just this season, but over the past couple seasons, quite frankly, just in the Lane Kiffin era, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how they could look so good in that second half of 2011. I mean, (laughs) some people just say, well, that's just, you know, that wasn't the norm. They just, you know, caught fire. And I I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't agree you can go into Notre Dame and win like they did and beat Oregon at Oregon. It just, you know, because it just, uh, the planets aligned or whatever. The tides were great and everything just came together. I don't understand how that could happen. And then you could turn around and play so poorly offensively in 2012 and followed into this season and play so poorly in 2013. And then for that half, look really good against Boston college, (laughs) the whole game, they look like a different team. And then you watch Boston college, go play Clemson, go play Florida state. And granted, those are in conference games. And that's a different animal when you're playing an opponent that knows you, but they really were competitive in those games and they really weren't that competitive against USC. And you just, you, you really don't have many answers. And that's probably the most frustrating thing. And I guess when you talk about the coaching versus the player execution, definitely consistency. I think that's what coaching brings. And the players right now, I get the sense some of them have checked out and maybe that's some of it that, you know, Ooh. it's not fun for them anymore because they realize we're, we're kind of in a transition. What we do right now, maybe it doesn't count. And that is tough for the coaches that are there because they have to try to overcome that. Oh, checked out. That's a bad word, Gerard. Hopefully, well, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, it, I I could see how that would happen. I, I think Ed Orgeron re-energized everybody, but uh, there wasn't a lot of energy. I think in the second half against Notre Dame, that was one of the ugliest half of fo- halves of football that I've seen in a long time. Definitely, I, and really, even more frustrating to watch, I think, than the Washington State game because offensively. They couldn't really get past midfield against Washington State. It seemed like the offense was completely impotent the whole game. Where in this game, it seemed like the offense had the right formula to move the ball against Notre Dame. And then in the second half, they went in and just, I don't know what happened. They just lost their mojo. They came back out and they they had no ability. Yeah, every time they they got good field position, they couldn't use it. I mean, they had a 90, I think it was a 94 yard drive in the first half, touchdown drive. Yeah, they moved the ball yeah. all the way down the field, and then that's horrible field position. Then, then once Reese got hurt, field position switched, switched <laughs> and USC got great field position every drive, and did nothing to get. You can't get great field position for an entire half and score zero points like that is. Just, and no, and no, you're going to get field position. Yeah, I mean, because you know they can't run. So, yeah, probably second second possession where Hendricks is in the game. They know this guy can't throw the ball. They can't, they can't move the ball against yeah. us. So we're going to have – so, okay, I understand. Maybe the playbook, you got an 80-yard playbook there, and that's your you – know, you're scripting for the second half. And you go, okay, wait, wait, wait. we're not playing like that anymore. We're basically right up against the red zone first snap. So we've got to adjust our play calling. Okay, but after the first two series, and now you know, okay, we're basically going to get the ball at the 50-yard line, if not better, every drive. Make that adjustment and start to call plays – that reflect that, and that didn't really happen. And I want to check one more thing, okay. because this came up on the board a lot, was Andre Hadari. And a lot of people kind of felt like Andre Hadari was the guy that lost the game. Listen, folks, if you are depending on kicking a 46-yard field goal on the road in the rain to win a ball game, and your offense could only score 10 points, you've got bigger issues in your kicker. I mean, way bigger issues in your kicker. So, I mean, that to me was just, 
I don't even go for that 46-yard field goal, quite frankly. Again, right. I go back to third, you know, five, third and six, or third and long, try to cut that in half and really go for it on fourth down, knowing that I'm going to go for it on fourth down and running something like a screen pass or not a screen pass because USC can't run screen passes, but whatever <laughs> it would have worked, that would have got them, you know, closer to making it, you know, fourth and two, fourth and four, something uh, to keep it interesting so you can go for it on fourth down. But I think that was – a little over the top when people were saying, basically looking at this as, you know, Hadari lost the game for us. If, if Hadari kicks two field goals and they win by, you know, a couple points, do you really come away from this game feeling like, oh, that was a great win for yeah. USC? No. There's a ton of criticism still on the offense and still on how the game was managed. Uh, Luke actually wrote it. I'll just read this quick. How, how much is it the kicker and how much is it coaching when a guy misses that much? How many games – did the kicking game cost US, USC this year and last? So, I mean, I agree, but I do think that there are – I mean, Hadari's – I mean, Ed Orgeron said it. Hadari, there's something technically wrong. Um, they've seen it on film. And so, to me, you have a full-time special teams coach. That has to be fixed. Yeah. And there, there's a <laughs> lot of problems with special teams. And I, I, I really was a big fan of John Baxter. I mean, I like the guy. But the, this team is not performing good enough on special teams – to, to warrant a guy that is a full-time assistant. I mean, he's coaching the tight ends and stuff too, but I think they should be playing better on special teams. They had some good returns, and there were some good things happening. There, there certainly have been some positives in special teams, but there's too many negatives, and I think in special teams you want to just be, don't, don't hurt me. You know, if I'm, I got a special teams unit. I don't want it to hurt me. If it can help me, that's great, but don't hurt me. And I think there's too many games where it has hurt USC. There's been some positive plays, but I'd rather have – all kind of neutral plays as opposed to a couple positive and a couple negative. Those negative ones can really hurt you. Yeah, exactly. And I think you said it when you've got a full-time coach and you put that much emphasis on special teams with USC. I mean, that's been a huge change since Pete Carroll. I mean, we saw that immediately. They practice special teams way more than they ever did with Pete Carroll. With right. Pete Carroll, it was a sidebar with Pete Carroll. It was exactly like you said, Let's just not have special teams that are going to lose us ball games. And with USC now, I mean, they spend so much time on it, it needs to be a weapon. Yeah. And we saw it in 2011. We saw the special teams start to go to where you actually had some punt blocks, you had some, some plays there on kickoff where you go, wow, okay, it's actually starting to come together for them. They're starting to have a little Virginia Tech ask, you know, kind of – attitude and, and swagger to their special teams. And that just got erased in 2012. And while I say you can't put that loss on Hadari, there's definitely been a lot of inconsistencies with the kicking game. USC's kickoff team is incredibly inconsistent. And I don't understand the strategy with kicking the ball through the end zone one play, then trying to directionally kick it another play, then kicking it on the ground another play. I mean, maybe they're just trying to kind of fuse the kickoff return teams. But to me, if you can kick it through the end zone every time and you've only got 75 players and you don't want to get your guys you know, on the kickoff team tired or hurt or what have you, kick it through the end zone. If you can do it, do it. And it seems like they play with that a lot. And it and it just there's a weird kind of one time it's this and another time it's that and there's not a lot of consistency there with the kick game. So I agree with you. I think that when you have a full time guy there and you spend that much time practicing it, it's got to be a big advantage for you. Just like when you have two full time special or uh, O line coaches, right? That has to be a you cannot have two full time offensive line coaches. And I hate to you know digress here into another subject, no, but that's a great segue. Know, actually, you have limited 
full-time roles there on the coaching staff. And so you've got to, you know, put those, make those spots count. <laughs> you've got two offensive line coaches right now, and offensive line might be the biggest weakness on offense. Well, that's a great segue. So I'm going to play this next voicemail. There's a couple of topics. Actually, the second one is a little bit of recruiting stuff. So let's, we can both come on on both the topics that this uh, caller brings up. Hey, it's Chris from San Pedro. Uh, question for Dan, being at practice every day. Do we have no other options on the offensive line? Because it's just getting tiring seeing Kevin Graff and Andre Walker especially, two uh, experienced guys, get beat game after game. I simply don't know how that can be, how their technique can be so bad. And I'm just wondering, from your experiences, uh, what, what you can comment on in that area. The other thing is just an observation. You know, I've seen receivers after receivers uh, all day today making plays. None of them are five-star star athletes, and like Lee and Aguilar. And I hope SC goes out and gets some two- and three-star guys that really look like they want to play and they haven't mailed it in. So those guys just aren't getting it done. They're not making plays. SC's receivers don't make plays when they need to. They don't hold on to the ball. And uh, it's just frustrating to see. I don't know if they're prima donnas or what it is, but I don't think we have the two best receivers in the country. I don't even think we have the two best receivers in the Pac-12. Thanks, guys. Appreciate all your work. Interesting stuff there, Gerard. I guess we can start with the offensive line. Uh, yeah. Not, not yeah, sure why it, John it, Martinez it, is not getting in there. John Martinez was starting for a couple of years. I don't know why he's not in there. It, it's, it's, it's difficult to figure out what really – is the total issue because, like I said, I've I've seen some people point out uh, some strength and conditioning issues, and you know maybe it's 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 you know there's not enough weight uh, lifting that's really specific to offensive linemen. From what I understand, the offensive linemen and the the receivers and the defensive backs and what have you all pretty much do the same weight training in terms of. Um, the different exercises that they do. It's just a matter of weight. It's just a change of weight. That's, that's what the players have said to me in the past, which is kind of an interesting thing. You would figure your offensive lineman, you would want to do more lower body stuff. You would want to do more squats and uh, you know, maybe more power cleans and things like that um, to have more explosion in the lower body, whereas you know, your defensive backs and, and maybe your receivers, um, you would have more flexibility drills or, or, or something to that extent. Um, and so you know, there's, there's been some kind of buzz uh, with people about that and some, some maybe some criticism coming up from just physically. And obviously we've heard tons about the training table and, and how guys eat and what have you. One thing I would point out with Chad Wheeler, because it was talked about in the broadcast, you know, Chad Wheeler not having the strength and size to be able to block stuff onto it. Well, let's take this into context. First and foremost, I don't think anybody would have thought Chad Wheeler would have been the starting left tackle at this point. Okay, this guy was a redshirt freshman who came into USC at 255 pounds. Okay, so this is a guy that really you're looking at Jacob Daniels, who was a tight end, uh, you know, coming out of Oxnard, who built himself up into being a great offensive tackle for USC, but it took time, and it's going to take time for Chad Wheeler. I think Chad Wheeler eventually leaves USC as a guy with pro potential. And I quite frankly think a lot of those offensive linemen they have also have a lot of talent. I think Andre Walker is talented. I think Kevin Graff is talented. I think it's a matter of these guys just don't look like they're on the same page as their coaches. There's just times where it looks like a Chinese fire drill and somebody lets somebody go by 
and they're not really attempting to block them. You know, sometimes they just let them go by because they think, well, that's where the running back's going to pick us, pick up the block, or that's where the blitz is coming. So, you know, my, the guard is going to shift over and take him. Um, and then other times it just looks like they just really aren't good enough. You know, footwork is not there. The hand placement is not there. So it's a combination of things. I, I can't say it's just one single thing. It kind of seems like everything is an issue but I have to say, having watched a lot of these guys play from high school, I just don't think they got bad. You know, I just don't think they all of a sudden lost their talent. <laughs> I just, I don't, that usually doesn't happen. That, and, and especially when you're talking about all five guys across the line, all those guys being pretty good players in high school, how many times can you have that happen where a guy just all of a sudden uh, regresses from a talent standpoint. I mean, you could go back and again, I don't want to pull this into another conversation, but the quarterback position and people talking about Cody Kessler, well, Cody Kessler is no good. And that's why, you know, the offense isn't doing this. They should have gone with Max Wittick. Well, they went with Max Wittick. We saw what Max Wittick did against Georgia Tech. We saw what Max Wittick was doing against Notre Dame last year. Before that, we saw what Matt Parkley did. We've seen three quarterbacks now, all All-Americans, all five-star guys, all guys that went to Army, All-American, Under Armour, All-American, and were MVPs. All three guys have now digressed to the point, regressed to the point where they can't run the offense, they can't score points, they can't seem to complete passes. They're, you know, falling over themselves trying to get away from pressure. It's just too much of a trend, too much of a coincidence of, you know, these guys, you see talented players that were even talented players at USC at one point, and now all of a sudden they seem like they've lost their talent. That just doesn't happen. That's just physically not possible for guys to just lose their talent. Not unless this is an Austin Powers episode and Dr. Evil's out there taking everybody's mojo away. <laughs> taking the mojo. No. Well, okay, so definitely offensive line problems, like I said, I think. John Martinez is going to have to get in there. They, they have to try to mix things up, and I think Ed Orgeron will. We'll see uh, how that goes. But as far as the receivers go, I don't I don't agree with the call. I, I do think that those are still two of the best guys. I mean, he didn't win the Blitnikoff Award last year for nothing. I mean, Marquise Lee, you know, he's been hurt a lot of the year. He's still an amazing receiver, and I and I think you could you saw what Nelson Aguilar is capable of. I mean, certainly these guys. He played really well against Notre Dame when, when he had the chance, and he had those plays on special teams to, to make things happen. I don't think you can fault this on what Nelson Aguilar uh, was doing out there. No. And I can explain, as it's been explained to me by a few different people, what has happened with Marquis Lee. Marquis Lee last year was made into somebody that I don't think he was ready to be. I think at the end of 2011 – Lane Kiffin saw Marquise Lee as a guy that could be a feature Reggie Bush level guy. The thing about number nine is that he can score seven. Whereas Woody, Robert Woods, was a very good possession receiver who could make good plays, but wasn't necessarily that take it to the house guy. And I think Lane felt like if we're going to build the brand up again, the guy that we got to ride is number nine. And that came at the expense of Robert Woods. And, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a joke that goes along with that, which was posted on our board by uh, LV Lone Pro, is a guy that posts on our board, who we know, and a uh, good guy, and, and kind of uh, talked about, you know, there's a little bit of a joke that was running in the locker room about, you know, whenever Lane and, and Marquise Woods uh, were together, it was kind of like the Toy Story 
thing because, you know, when Buzz came along, they put Woody on the shelf. And that's kind of sort of what happened, and, and it alienated Marquise to a little bit because you got to understand, Robert Woods is a guy that is like, he, he is a, 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 an icon locally. He's a guy that from Sarah High School kids still talk about Robert Woods and how good Robert Woods was. You got to understand, Marquise Lee wasn't that guy in high school. Marquise Lee was a great player with great potential, but he was not Robert Woods. Robert Woods was the guy that was scoring all the touchdowns and making all the tackles and playing every position, punting the ball, returning punts. I mean, he was the guy that they built CIF championships on. So he's the guy that has the folklore and the following. And Lane Kiffin went away from him. And while I understand the logic of that, it was really to the detriment of the team because Robert Woods is the model citizen. He's the guy that is the leader on and off the field, the guy that has respect of everybody because of how hard he works and how diligent he was, whether it was in the playbook or watching film. I mean, he put it all out there, and everybody knew he was the guy. But the guy that worked the hardest was not getting the football. And it affected Marquise because he had a great relationship with Woody, and all of a sudden they kind of put this weird, put him in a weird position because he's the guy getting the ball. And at some point I think he didn't want it. <laughs> he wasn't ready for it. He wasn't. He didn't want it, and it, it 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 the relationship deteriorated from that point. And now it's basically spiking Marquise Lee out. Marquise Lee is in this spot where he has to be the guy, and I don't think he's ever used to being the guy. I mean, at at Sarah, he was the third guy. Yeah, he wasn't the second guy. He was <laughs> the third guy. the The first guy was Robert Woods. The second guy was George Farmer. The third guy was Marquise Lee. So it's a very different situation he's in right now. He's playing head games with himself, and he's you know the guy that's supposed to be the marquee player for USC. I think USC's trying to do something smart. I think they 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 definitely know what they have with Marquise, and they're trying to bring him along slowly in games now instead of doing what Lane was doing was just you know force feed him the ball on bubble screens and try to get him you know twelve passes, twelve receptions in the first half. Now they've kind of eased back on that, but he's still battling that. And it's just going to just take time for him to be able to be eased in where he can, you know, kind of compliment another guy and play off another guy. And that guy's probably going to be Nelson Aguilar. But that's pretty much, I think, what has happened with Marquise. And that's what everybody says in terms of, you know, another top player like Matt Barkley and Kevin Graff and these guys that we've seen at their different points at USC be very successful that guy now is playing, you know, sometimes a detriment to his own team just because uh, he, he feels like he needs to be the guy. He needs to make all these plays, but he can't. And uh, it's been, like I said, it's a, tr- it's a trend that you just, you're seeing too much to just blame it all on the players. There's uh, one more question on Lee, a voicemail. So I wanted to play that one for you too. Here you go. Hi, this is a question about Marquise Lee. I'm wondering, did he play receiver in high school or did he mostly play cornerback because I've heard coach Hyde talk a lot about how he could be a great cornerback um also I'm wondering um about uh, why he's been having so many issues uh dropping passes and thinking that if that's if receiver is not his natural position then maybe uh, that has something to do with it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can see people criticizing Mark Easley. He won the Belitnikov Award last year. <laughs> he's, he's proven it. That's proven the it. best you can do as a receiver. Yeah. He finished, like, what, fourth in the Heisman or something? He's pretty good. I mean, yes, he's been hurt this year, but he won the Belitnikov Award. Yeah, I, I think, no, he, he's definitely going to be able to play receiver. He played receiver in high school. Um, he played free safety, actually. He didn't play cornerback. Yeah. He played free safety on defense, and the talk coming out of high school was that maybe he would be a guy that would be a free safety. And so that, that was really kind of where, you know, he had done both. And, and like I said, he was the third guy, you know, when it came to where the ball was going on that team, you know, with Robert Woods and George Farmer. And so he's never really been the feature guy, and I think that's it's really more of a mental thing. It's not athletically. It's not like he can't get open. I mean, we've seen him drop passes where he's run right by the defender. He's just dropping the ball. And it's not a matter of, uh, the, you know, his hands are, you know, not made to catch the ball or, or anything, you know, <laughs> that, that's physically wrong with him. It's, it's really just a mental thing right now. Um, I would say also, though, going kind of back to the recruiting thing, with the four stars and the five stars. I think one thing that USC has to do more of is build those complementary players around guys like Marquis Lee and not being afraid to, to, to put those offers in places where you got a guy that's not a four, four guy and he's not six foot five and really kind of trying to build your receiving core with guys that complement you know, a couple of those big-time five-star guys and not trying to stack five-star guys on top of five-star guys. And I'll tell you that recently just here, as Ed Erdron has taken over, they've done a much better job offering local players and really going after local players. And I talked to, a, you know, a recruit's parent today. We had a long conversation about Shea Fields. And there's a little debate there. You know, Shea Fields, a USC-level guy, and we've talked about him on the recruiting podcast before. He's you know, he's probably 5'10", uh, 100, I, I say 170 pounds. I mean, maybe he's probably not even 170 pounds. That's more of a list weight. He's not a big guy. He's slight. He's, he's not a big guy. He's not a guy that's going to go out there and physically impose. He's not going to be able to make all these plays on his own. He's a guy that works within a system and can be very productive. But, you know, USC kind of lacks that right now. They lack a guy that just goes out there, runs great routes, and will catch the ball on third and six. You know, the closest thing they really have to it is D.J. Rogers, and Darius Rogers has been hurt. But that's really their go-to guy on third and six, and, and he's not there. And so I think you've got to continue to build, you know, these, these recruiting classes. And as USC starts to get more scholarship offers, and they're going to have, you know, a full class here in 2015, they can't be afraid of getting role players and being able to build around the top guys and get away from, hey, let's just go get as many five-star guys as we can, and we'll figure out which five-star guy really plays like a five-star guy. Uh, let's see. Well, we got to do a couple quick topics before we talk coaching, and then we got to talk a little recruiting. Man, it's, it's going by quick. Um, Jesse from Olympia, Washington, says, loves the show. Just frustrated to watch our offensive line get beaten physically dominated when it matters most week in and week out. Why can't two coaches – not get these guys focused and performing at least average. I know we we touched on this already, but but you're going to answer the question now, Ryan. I want to say, <laughs> I mean, I I agree with this, and I do think that there's some issues that Lane Kiffin had. I think Lane Kiffin made some bad decisions. 
I think Lane Kiven made some other bad decisions trying to prove that those early decisions weren't <laughs> bad. Uh, and I think it's kind of snowballed. And I think one of these things, and I've harped on this from the very beginning, when you start the season with three offensive full-time coaches and seven – I mean three uh, defensive full-time coaches and seven offensive full-time coaches, that's a real problem. You know, you, When your head coach is the offensive coordinator on the defensive side, until you know uh, Pete Jenkins got brought in, you had your head coach coaching the defensive line, you had your defensive coordinator coaching DBs, and you had a linebacker coach, and that was it. So, and you know, yeah, there's there's grad assistants and stuff there, but you need a full time guy that these guys respect to coach these people, and and to have two, I think that Lane Kiffin didn't want to fire everyone he wa- was told to fire, and right or wrong, I think a lot of people wanted James Craig gone because of the way the offensive line played. They wanted Monty Kiffin gone the way the defensive played. So he got rid of one, and he kind of kept James Craig, but brought in a. It was like a. Con- it wasn't a concession, but it was kind of a concession. So you have two offensive line coaches, which I don't ever remember working out all that well. I'm sure it does somewhere. But to me... Yeah, the pros. The pros, yeah, where you can have 17 coaches <laughs> and, not, exactly. and not nine. I think it even this week, and I'm not saying who, but I do think it would be better for this team to have one offensive line coach and bring in a defensive back coach. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree. I hate to... You know, uh, you know, start putting up uh, you know unemployment uh, stickers on on people's office doors and calling out coaches because I mean, we we also remember these guys have families and these guys oh, are yeah. people. They're not just names and they're not just coaches. But you look at the logic of kind of what happened, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about <laughs> making some decisions that weren't working out, <laughs> and instead of pivoting and maybe going in another direction he decided to double down. I mean, that's always the, 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 the terminology that I've used with, with Lane and some of the decisions that he made. It was very clear to us that when he fired Kennedy Palomalu and made Clay Helton the offensive coordinator, he was doubling down. Instead of replacing James Craig, he decided to hire over him, bring in a guy with more experience, which basically said, yeah, you didn't do a good enough job to be the offensive line coach, but then at the same time, maintain him, Yes. which I did, never got the logic there. I never got the explanation there. I never really understood how that benefited the team, especially when you're talking about college football and you're taking away a spot from another position that may need that full-time guy, that full-time direction. So I agree with you. I think he doubled down and he was going to do things his way. I understand it. And as a, as a son of a coach, I understand kind of where he was coming from with that. It was his philosophy. It was his way of doing things. And he felt, look it, I'm going to do my, my way or I'm going to take the highway. And you kind of have to have that, you know, sink or swim type uh, attitude when you're a coach. And it just it didn't work. But now, unfortunately, you know, Ed Erdron is trying to win with those circumstances and those decisions, which he didn't necessarily make. And so he's, you know, kind of that thing where somebody else made the bed. Now you got to sleep in it. Yeah, and I don't think it's just Lane Kiffin. Like there, I think he did a lot of those. And I think when you make a questionable decision, like if it's a baseball thing, and you're like, you uh, you're trying to steal home, and you know the results kind of tell you was that right or not. I mean, right away, not that it doesn't work out every time. If you double down in Vegas when you have six, you know, you have uh, eleven, and the dealer has a six showing, you could still lose. But it was probably the right decision. More often than not, it would be. I think some of the decisions Lane made were kind of questionable. And then when it looks, you go down the road and a bunch of experienced offensive linemen aren't looking very good, 
then you're like, well, okay, then maybe it wasn't the right thing. You know, you, it was questionable, but it probably didn't. It did obviously it hasn't worked out uh, that great. But even Pete Carroll, you know, when he doubled, you could argue he doubled down, getting rid of uh, Norm Chow, and uh, you know, USC didn't win a championship after that. So I mean, I I don't think it's all these coaches have big egos, and you you have to. You cannot make millions of dollars and run a huge program like this and not have a big ego. Sometimes you know that ego can make you make the wrong decisions. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes you have to do it, you know, because you're making the right decision. You have to do it your way. But I do think a lot of these decisions Lane Kiffin made end up being the wrong ones. And like you said, Ed Orgeron's kind of paying the piper right now. Yeah, yeah. And and but do we answer the questions? I mean, do we know what the issue is with the two offensive line coaches? No. I, I mean, you could speculate and say, well, maybe it's a communication issue. Maybe there was a system in place. And now you're bringing in a coach that may not know that system. And while he's trying to teach them with that system in place, with the terminology that he knows, you have that other coach there that may be reinforcing that old system and those old bad habits. That, that could happen. That, that's something that, you know, is a big reason why you may not want two offensive line coaches in the situation. I mean, if you brought two new guys in and they both had – you know, similar backgrounds or what have you, and, and, you know, they understood kind of each other from a communication standpoint, and, okay, yeah, we're two uh, guys that came from a pro-style system, and, you know, we know that, you know, these line calls are like this, and this is just like this, and this is how we're going to do with our, our shifts and our protection, then that might be different, but with a guy as a holdover and that system being still in place offensively, just in general, and then bringing a guy in who comes from Kentucky and, you know, background is really more college football. I wonder if that's, you know, there's just some issues with, you know, this is how we're doing things. And then they're off with, you know, the next coach and the next coach is going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, we did this like this before. So it's the same thing, basically, you know, and that kind of back and forth of (laughs) guys are maybe getting, I don't know, different, different directions um, from, from two different coaches. I mean, that would be the, the, the assumption and the obvious thing. And you think it can't be that obvious, but sometimes it is. Uh, One last topic. Uh, Marcel wrote in, uh, it seems to me that Cody has a very soft release and he puts in parentheses weak and he holds the ball too long. How can that be good for the offense? And uh, Gerard, we followed Cody Kessler since high school. I remember talking to you about this when we were at the Army Bowl. Um, he was not a guy that put a lot of zip on his passes. I thought he had great touch. Uh, he put he threw some very catchable balls out there. But it seemed like it. he wasn't mixing it up with throwing a dart and then throwing a kind of a lob in there. And I we saw that in the interception, kind of back-footed it against Notre Dame. You, know, you let the defensive end, or I think it was the outside linebacker, drop back. And really an underthrown ball, and, and you let this guy who should have never even been in the play uh, make an interception. But it was kind of floated out there a little bit. If it got there a little quicker, there's no way that guy's going to make the play. Um, I do think that's a fair criticism, that I do like the way he throws the ball. But sometimes it calls for – the quarterback says, you have to make a throw that's a little – it gets there a little faster, not kind of floated out there. And, and as far as holding on the ball too long, yeah, he could do that a little bit. My biggest issue is with his pocket presence. He just doesn't seem, at least you know, some, at least part of the time, to have that sense when there's a rush behind you and there's space in front of you. Step up, step into the throw, and make a quick throw down the middle of the field. There was times where there was the rush; it was all behind him. I thought the offensive line did a pretty good job. 
he would he, all he needs to do is take a step or two forward and he's away from it and didn't do that and end up getting sacked. So maybe share your thoughts on what you've seen from Cody Kessler all the way from high school up till now. Yeah, I, I agree on a lot of that. I think with Cody, and we said this, you know, throughout the offseason in fall camp, he's not the big Allen quarterback. That's Max Wittick. He, he, Cody is a guy that dishes more. Um, he really kind of wants to, to get the ball to different receivers. He, he does move fairly well, and a lot of people have been very, you know, critical of, of us saying that. But we've seen him move fairly yeah. well. I, I think what I would like to see USC do, and they did this, and I think they did this against Boston College. It might have been Utah State, but I felt like it was against Boston College early in the game where they actually had a couple design runs for Cody Kessler yeah, and let help. him get out of the pocket. And there was a few times in that Notre Dame game where I thought, you know, he could get some positive yardage stepping up and just running. And we even saw Matt Barkley do that against yeah. Notre Dame a few years ago, and that really put so much more pressure on the defense when they think, oh, this guy might be mobile enough to get a first down on third and six if he just steps up in the pocket. He did a I couple agree times. With you, though. He, he did. Cu- he do- did a couple times that got called back because of holding calls. So he had a couple. Exactly. First down. Yeah. There was that one that he basically had a touchdown. It looked like, and there yeah. was kind of a, a real questionable holding call there on the edge. Um, and, and so that was, you know, that, that would have been a huge play for USC if they would have been able to convert that without the penalty. But the thing about a pocket awareness is definitely something that I've seen with him more and more. He kind of seems to sway a little bit towards the, the rush for some reason. And with him only being about six one, maybe six two, you're talking about a guy that in terms of his passing is much more affected by the pass rush. He's not a big guy, so he's not just going to throw over people. So if you've got any kind of pressure that's getting into his face or coming up on him where he has to move, that's all of a sudden affecting him, uh, I think, a lot more in terms of his vision and where he's throwing the ball. So that's going to be a bigger deal for him, and I think you've seen a little bit of that with some of the teams that have brought pressure or they've been able to just get pressure with their defensive line. Uh, But the awareness thing is kind of where I'm kind of trying to figure out what's going on with that and why is he not – able to move around better and get himself clear of, of that pressure of, of, of any contact from his offensive lineman or somebody coming over and, and starting to come up into where he wants to throw the ball. He definitely threw the ball a lot off his back foot in that game. And, you know, a few times he actually got away with it. And so I, I would like to see him have a little more confidence and be able to maybe make some runs and get upfield. I mean, at this point, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't really matter for USC. I mean, <laughs> there's not a big gap between him and probably what Max Wittick is going to do at this point. I mean, you're only scoring 10 points on Notre Dame, and you got half a field. You're playing on the 50-yard field for the whole second half, and you can't score any more than that. That's that's pretty much okay. We, You know, it doesn't matter who we put in there. So I, I'd like to see him just, you know, go after it. And, and USC, I think, in terms of play calling – Clay Helton's got to let him go after it. You know, put him in the shotgun and let him, you know, if, if there's a design run where he can get a couple yards here and there and just keep the, keep the defense honest, then fine. Maybe that'll help him out a little bit. And then when he has those moments where he has to scramble and it's not by design, he feels confident that he's going to be able to get those yards on his own. All right. Well, we've already gone almost an hour. We haven't even talked about the coaching hot board and recruiting yet. So we'll have to jump into these topics a little quicker than maybe we would I know, rapid fire. Well, if you haven't checked out the coaching hot board, it's on the front page of uscfootball.com. We try to we update it every few days or so. Um, you know, putting any notes kind of we see out there. We can add names, we can subtract names. Um, some of the and we we have a coaching poll on the par, on the peristyle right now. Who uh, Kevin Sublin, the head coach at uh, Texas A&M, is actually winning that poll. 
I was at Orgeron for a while. Uh, we started the poll again uh, after the Notre Dame game. He Kevin Sub was winning. Then USC beats Arizona. Then Ed Orgeron was winning. Uh, we decided to restart on Sunday, and now someone's winning again, followed by I think Chris Peterson and Art Browse has made a a late rush there. But the, from Baylor, man, I, having Baylor like Art Browse at USC and and you know the or, the Oregon offense in the same conference that could be pretty special to watch. Yeah, well, it could be fun to watch <laughs> if you're just a general fan of college football. I don't know if it would be you know. Uh, It'd be a little straight. It'd be basketball on turf, basically. I think for the Pac-12 would turn into like, uh, you know, maybe the 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 early '90s versions of uh, you know the the Big 12 there, where you had you know those spread offenses and a lot of teams just going back and forth. I guess that was the early '90s. I can't remember when the 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 spread offenses kind of hit the Big 12, and it was like, holy cow, we're not going to play defense in this conference anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, we there's definitely you know names that are that are surging a, a little bit. I, I, Kevin Tomlin or Kevin. Mike Tomlin, <laughs> that's my uh, my number one. Everybody <laughs> wants to know what's your number one. Uh, Mike Tomlin, <laughs> the yeah. guy that no USC will never get. Um, but uh, the Kevin uh, Tomlin is a name that keeps coming up, keeps coming up. And I'll be honest with you, I'm sort of bullish on it just because. I mean that you know Texas A&M is a pretty good situation that he's in. It's it's a good program. They're going to be able to pay him some money. It's in the SEC. He can get good talent there in that Houston area. He, you know, coached there before. He has some ties there before. He obviously has a lot of ties to Texas. His family's in Texas. It just, you know, kind of feels like that's that's a job you're going to have to really kind of pry him away from. Everybody I talk to, and even people that really have no information on the subject of Kevin Sumlin himself, but just the USC situation and what USC should do, all think it makes great sense for Kevin Sumlin to be at USC. I mean, everybody just says – That'd be great. That'd be great for him. I mean, he'd be able to write his own ticket at USC with the talent he can get and the program and the tradition and you know and even you know uh, 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 Robert Sellers who you know has known Kevin for a long time and knew him from when he was at Houston. You know, he says the two programs that really probably give him the best opportunity on the college level to still be a step up from Texas A&M would be Oklahoma in USC, Oklahoma being another program where he has a lot of ties and he was an OC there for a while with, uh, with, uh, Kevin Wilson, uh, at Oklahoma. So, you know, Oklahoma is kind of a, 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 a relationship type deal for him and, and kind of, it would be kind of a coming home, sort of speak for him, even though he went to Purdue, but he just has a lot of ties with Oklahoma that way. And then, but USC being the big pro town, the big, you know, money, the big star, He's a guy that, you know, personality-wise would fit really well in Hollywood is from what everybody says to me. And we continue to hear sources saying he's going to seriously look at this job. So that's definitely an interesting one. And I would say with our poll, we also have to keep in mind that I think the Sumlin and Peterson vote is a little split there. So you kind of have the USC fans that are, that are Ed Erdron fans, and rightfully so, because Ed Erdron has done some great things for USC as, a, as just an assistant coach and a recruiting coordinator over the years. So you have those guys that are loyal to USC and they're loyal to whoever's at USC right now. And then you have the split vote, I think, right now, Sumlin and Peterson, and probably Bryles. less so with Bryles. Yeah. Bryles has got some fans out there, too, that statistically love that he's putting up 70 points a game and they feel like that type of offense is the new wave of, of, of basically, you know, even more than what Oregon is doing. Um, so I, I, I think it's a little – it may be a little bit um, – not necessarily accurate from the from the standpoint of going, okay, this guy's, you know, definitely number one, this guy's definitely number two. I think Kevin Sumlin, quite frankly, is probably even ahead more if you would have said, 
if you take Ed Erdogan out of there, then you're probably going to get even a bigger vote for probably Kevin Sumlin. And I, I think so. I've had some people tell me that, uh, you know, Kevin Sumlin would never leave Texas A&M for USC. Why would he do that? And I think people are not, and, and, and people in the industry, uh, you know, people in national writers, I've talked to other national writers that said those people are full of crap. You know, if you look at Texas A&M, it's almost like, Texas A&M is what UCLA is to USC, Texas A&M to Texas. And yeah, yeah, it's the yeah. second biggest program in the state. And it's not going to change. If if Johnny Manziel leads Texas A&M, well, they have two losses. But if they led them to a national championship this year and next year, it's still not going to be Texas. And UCLA, Brett Hundley could leave, you know, lead UCLA to a couple of national championships. It's still not USC. Now, over time, you can overcome that. But a good year or two uh, – it's going to be more than just one coach. It's yeah. going to have to be a lineage of coaches that come through and be very successful over a long period of time for them to be able to close that gap to where you, you start to argue who's better. Yeah, so if he could go from a program that's an awesome, obviously it's a great program and it's, it's really good right now compared to where it's been just even a few years ago. But he does have a, an older brother in the same state that's you know recruiting that state. At USC, he's the older brother, and he's the big gorilla in the room. At USC is a top-five job, and Texas A&M is not. Now, it doesn't mean there's, – there's plenty of jobs that aren't top-five or whatever that coaches wouldn't leave and they want to st- you know, stick around. It seems like Chris Peterson – Pat Fitzgerald. Is one of those guys. Pat Fitzgerald is another one. They're, you know, they're losing games all over the place, and he still probably wouldn't leave. Uh, but we do feel, and I think the sources we've talked to, think that it is a distinct possibility that Kevin Sumlin could – you know, would possibly take that job. So it's not – it's not like if this is completely out of the blue. Just don't look at it. Oh, this year Texas A&M is better than USC, so there's no way he would leave. Like it, it's bigger than that. And yeah, you know, it doesn't mean it'll happen, but certainly don't look at it. There's no way it could happen because Texas A&M is better right now. And, but I mean, honestly, I, I guess when it first started and we first started writing and doing our research and contacting people about these candidates, and you know, it's it's a it's a it's a weird time to be to be doing this because you know what we've run in with chris peterson trying to contact guys and trying to do our next head coach series there's a lot of people just don't want to talk even in the media because they don't want to be ostracized by the coach because the coach right now is trying to win games for the team he's with and they don't want that distraction and if you in the media or a source that's quoted as talking about this guy and you're on that beat, then you run the risk of being a distraction and being ostracized. So it's been kind of a weird situation trying to get a lot of people to be able to talk freely uh, for features and stories about these things. Um, And obviously I think, you know, every situation is different. You talk about Peterson specifically, you know, is he a guy media wise that, you know, wants to handle L.A., wants to handle all the peripherals that, that you have to, to, to handle with the job at USC. You know, we have a source that's pretty tight with, uh, with Chris Peterson and, and, you know, obviously didn't want to go on record, doesn't want to talk about, you know, who he is or, you know, how, how much validity there is to what he says. Just take it from us. It's a good source. It's a guy that you would think would know what Chris Peterson is thinking, and he is pretty much telling us no way in hell he goes to Texas or USC. Yeah, <laughs> which that's not good news if you're if you're a big Chris Peterson fan. But uh, all right, well, lots of good stuff with the coaching search. Definitely check out uscfootball.com. Maybe more. a new name to the coaching board tomorrow. We're going to see what happens with Miami yeah. and the NCAA violations that uh, allegedly happened. So we could uh, we could add a new name for that. So st- definitely stay tuned for that. But last, we got to talk about 
recruiting, Gerard. I, I, we did have some questions. I'm probably not going to be able to get to them, unfortunately. But here's the thing. There was some momentum when Ed Orgeron took over. All the, the local guys getting offered, commitment, maybe another commitment, and now a decommitment after the loss. Is this going to be a roller coaster, or what's going on here with USC recruiting? Well, the decommitment came from DJ Calhoun, uh, six foot, two hundred pound running back, or excuse me, linebacker uh, from uh, from El Cerrito uh, High School up there in Northern California. And it was really semantics as to whether he was committed or not committed after Lane Kiffin was fired. He had originally said, "I'm reopening my my recruitment," and then prefixed that <laughs> afterwards, saying, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. I don't mean that I'm decommitting. I'm just." reopening things, which is, I mean, it's, it's saying the same thing. Right. And so this, this weekend he took an official visit to ASU, and now he's officially reopening his, his recruitment. So that we kind of saw coming, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that recruitment goes and if USC continues to recruit him hard. He's a guy that I think is maybe a little more of a system guy where he will be impacted by what type of defense USC plays next year. And I think that's the big deal for most of these recruits. Most of these recruits, I think they understand USC is going to struggle. USC, the, the product on the field is kind of going to be all over the place. You don't know what to expect. I, I think, quite frankly, we don't know what to expect other than the unexpected. I think USC could turn around and, and lose a game really badly and look terrible, and everybody will be you know, pounding at the gates and, and upset that uh, even in the circumstances with sanctions and the interim coach, they shouldn't play this bad, and then turn around and beat a team like UCLA. And it's very possible. That's kind of where we're at right now with, with USC football. And I think the recruits kind of get that vibe. The most important thing that I've gotten from recruits as to the here and now of, of Ed Ergeron taking over this program is the positivity from an atmosphere standpoint, from an environment standpoint. The, the kids have all talked about the energy changing around the team, and, and obviously that's coming through the current players because they don't, they're not, these kids are not all at practice and they're not all taking unofficial visits on campus. It, that's, that's not where they're seeing the change. It's just that word of mouth from the current players and the current players being more happy with the way Ed Erdogan is running things and the way the staff is now. And I think that's a big deal, and that will continue to be a big deal until there's a new coach hired. And I made this statement, and actually somebody's got it as their SIG file in their post. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with USC recruiting until, A, they win 10 games, or B, they find a new head coach. And at this point, they're not going to win 10 games, and they have yet <laughs> to find a new head coach. So we're still waiting for that next, you know, that, that, that shoe to drop. Uh, Fight on 007 wanted to know about the new commitment. Um, is it Nwusu? Is that how you say his last name? Uh, Uchenna Nwusu? And Uchenna Which is the kid from Narbonne. He said, yeah, from, uh, from Narbonne. I went to go see him, and he actually got – I think it was a concussion. He got dinged and ended up leaving the game. But does USC, does USC know something about him that no one else knows? Why would they offer him? Last year as a junior, he was only playing JV. I looked at Narbonne's website, and as a linebacker and DB, he's only made 19 solo tackles in six games this year. As far as I can see, he's virtually unranked by Rivals.com. What do they see in this guy? Fight on 007. They see physical potential, and they saw it, I think, at their camp because that's when he kind of popped up on the radar. And um, coming out of May evaluations and going into their camp in early June, uh, that's when the buzz was created. It wasn't necessarily something he's done recently. I think it's been a guy that has kind of been, you know, looked at as a possible target for an offer for, for a little while. And as we've said before here in this podcast, that, that that's definitely there's been a real move 
towards kind of uh, reinvigorating, you know, the, the local talent and the city's talent uh, about USC with some of these scholarship offers. Um, and I think, you know, it's really kind of physical upside. The guy that plays defensive back and probably moves down and plays outside linebacker for USC, um, he's got a ton of uh, physical potential in terms of, you know, getting bigger and getting stronger. I have not seen enough of him to really know whether this is a real reach offer or this is a, you know, a kind of a hidden gem. Saw him play a little bit during 7-on-7 uh, seven seven, uh, for Narbonne High School. He didn't play on any all-star teams. He just played for Narbonne High School. And he was pretty good. He was pretty good. He wasn't amazing. It wasn't anything there. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this guy is fantastic. It wasn't a Fred Warner situation. I mean, Fred Warner, the 6'3", 215-pound linebacker from uh, Mission Hill San uh, Marcos High School, was a guy that, you know, was like, oh, my gosh, this, this guy is committed to BYU. Are you kidding me? This guy is way good. He's <laughs> These guys are usually not committed to BYU. Uh, so, so yeah, with Nwosu, it's 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 a it's it's a definite potential thing, and and I got to see more of him game wise, game film, to make that assessment. I mean, we want to do a a future impact on him, but right now I really don't have enough information on him to really, you know, get ex- get, get get you know anybody excited about. Okay, this is what he brings to the table. I know that USC certainly seems to be excited about him and to pull the trigger on him uh, that quickly. Um, you know, a, a smart player, a player that uh, that has good awareness, I can say that much about him. But physically, you know, is, is the upside there or not? I, I kind of need to see him play more in person. The most recent commitment they actually got was from Elijah Wan Tucker. That's the last guy that they had commit. And uh, Elijah Wan Tucker, who's, who we just call Buddha, um, six, about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, ish, 220 pounds. That's a steal, in my opinion. I think he is a big time steal. I think regardless of what coach comes in, I think you want to keep that guy. I, I, and that's going to be the one thing that we're just not sure what's going to happen here. You get a coaching change, and then you know the system changes, and all of a sudden you're looking at guys that are committed, and you're going, uh, you know, does this guy fit what we want to do? And that's not fair to the kids, and it's not even fair to the new head coach. And that's kind of a, a whole other can of worms in terms of taking commitments at this point uh, with, with the interim process. But I will say with Buddha Tucker, I love what I see from Buddha. This is a guy that makes plays, that makes an impact on the high school level. Uh, he's a force player. He's got plenty of physical upside. Really, the only thing I haven't seen from him is playing outside linebacker. How can he play in coverage? You know, how you know, is, he, is he stiff in the hips? You really haven't seen a lot of that spatial awareness. I haven't seen enough of that to really make a judgment. But physically, I love where he's going and where he's going to be. He's going to be a big boy when he gets to college. And uh, and he's a kid that just plays football and, and is and is, doesn't shy away from contact. And you love great players that play on great teams and make an impact. Because there's a lot of guys sometimes you see on these really good teams, they don't do much. They kind of disappear. And, and you kind of wonder, okay, this guy – you know, he, he's not making a big impact on the high school level. How much impact is he going to make at the right. college level? And I've, over the years, put a lot more weight into that in doing these evaluations. One last one, I guess, we'll, unless there's other topics you want to talk about, Gerard, but we've gone pretty long. But Kevin in South OC, so I'm sure I'm not the only SC guy or podcast listener that's curious about the strategy of these coaches offering guys that are being recruited by the likes of San Jose State, UNLV, San Diego State, etc., well, I know we're still chasing the top guys, too, and Gerard talks about projecting as a key to recruiting. Is this strategy all about building depth for the future or getting back to building strong ties with local SoCal schools? That's Kevin in South OC. I think it's both. I mean, I think it's definitely 
you know, uh, you know, I think Ed is, is, is being smart in trying to rally the local fan base and rally the local high school coaches, getting back to basics. I mean, that's what Pete Carroll did when he first took over. And it wasn't until six, seven years later where all of a sudden USC became more of a national school because they had won so much that, you know, they started getting kind of complacent with the local kids. And the local kids were the guys that they saw all the time. And they became more enamored with this mystery recruit from Central Florida somewhere <laughs> that was like, oh, this guy is like, you know, he's crazy. He could be the next, you know, uh, Javon Curse type guy. And, and it became all about those guys because they had great YouTube tape. And the local guys had to jump through hoops to get those scholarship offers. So I, I think so. It's a little bit of both. I think it's re-energizing um, that, that local fan base and the local high schools and getting kids, you know, thinking about USC again. But also, I, I have no problem. I mean, I have no problem at all if – if I'm a USC fan with USC going out there and finding guys, yeah. you should, your board as a USC coach should be full of guys from California and your third and fourth options and what have you, they should all be California guys. And I think in previous years here, a lot of their second, third tier guys that they're looking at, if they miss out on the first guy is, is a guy from Georgia or a guy from yeah. Alabama. And you're going, where are you going to go down? You're going to Alabama for your four-star guy that, is your second choice? I mean, that's just that's you can't do that. So really, you, you definitely have to build your board and build depth through California, yes. and you got to really build even your top line players from California too. I always tell people, you know what? When you look at the Peristyle end of the Coliseum, you look at those jerseys. Those guys aren't from Florida. They're not from Georgia. They're not from Texas. They're all from California, yeah. and that's where USC is going to build it. That's that's where they have to continue to to rally and they like I said they got to find guys in California they can't just sit back and be like hey we're gonna go look at the rivals 100 and those are the guys we're gonna recruit from California you gotta find some guys and and develop them Chad Wheeler is a perfect example think about Chad Wheeler think about him at the Notre Dame game and then you know come talk to me a couple years from now and it's, you guys are gonna go oh yeah Chad Wheeler ended up being the guy. That's that's the kind of players that they have to bring in the program, but obviously they have to build the depth to a point where you're not playing him as redshirt freshman here. And, and I think every one of these guys doesn't necessarily mean just because like their best offer might be San Jose State right now, doesn't mean UCLA and Cal and Washington and, and Oregon are not going to offer them soon. I don't think it's a bad thing to get in there a little bit early on some of these players that, you know, maybe they're not even committable offers. You know, you're talking, but they're recruiting these guys. Like if they would have did this with Jermaine Kelly last year. Yeah. They might have been able to get them to switch instead of going to Washington. They end up getting stuck with only 12 guys because they didn't offer a lot of these local guys early. So now at least you're in on some of these local guys early. And maybe they're not recruiting them as hard, but they've been in on them. And if, if they have some five-star guy from Texas lined up or from Florida or whatever, and he bails at the last minute, then it's a little bit easier to go back to the local kid and say, hey, you know, we we still want you. Can you come on board? And they weren't able to do that last year because they weren't successful on the field. And then it just, it, you can't just pull those guys out of your hat at the last minute. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, you, you have to be very cautious with the out-of-state recruiting and, and not necessarily, you know, put all your eggs in that basket. You know, I think with uh, a few guys, they, they sort of did that. And, I mean, at that point it was USC was preseason number one, and you really had an eternity, you know, before you're going to have that signing day. It was it was a whole season in front of you, and so much happens, you know, during the season. And obviously, so much happened with USC. They went from being a, a BCS title contender with a Heisman Trophy candidate quarterback to you know going seven and six and losing in the Sun Bowl. And so that flipped everything on top of its head. And 
all those guys that they had, uh, you know, pinned their hopes on out of state, those guys are going to go closer to home. They're going to go where all their, you know, buddies and everybody says, hey, that's a good football team. Why are you going to go out to USC? They suck. And so, you know, with the local kids, you don't have to worry about that. And uh, I, I think that you definitely have to build with that. There's going to be more support for those kids. They're not going to get homesick. There's a lot of advantages to recruiting locally, and especially when you're Southern California and you have the ability to still get top-flight talent locally. Uh, you got to do it. And it also it, it strangles the talent away from Oregon and from UCLA and from Washington. You know, you're, you're withholding all those guys that they could – be getting you know they have to all of a sudden go further down in their boards if they want to stay in california or they got to go out and try to recruit guys from texas and florida instead and you know let them do that <laughs> let them be uh you know the, the the bridesmaid and not the bride on signing day and so <laughs> it's definitely you know there, there's definitely strategic changes that usc is implemented now with edward ron which is interesting because he was the recruiting coordinator in lane kiffin so it wasn't like he didn't have any say in what they did. Uh, but now they've kind of turned a new leaf, so to speak, with, with the local players and offering guys like Shea Fields, uh, you know, uh, at, at a St. John Bosco and, and uh, Yuchenna Nwusu and, um, you know, Bubba T- or Buddha Tucker. You know, they've, they've done that. They've, they've kind of re-energized and kind of put that focus more on the local players. Kind of got to be disciplined and stay that way, I think, in the future. I think the new head coach that comes in, that's got to be the first thing that he steps up and says, hey, look it. The border around California that, you know, has a lot of holes in it and there's a lot of little dings in it and people have been climbing it. Well, guess what? We are going to rebuild it and we are going to put barbed wire around it and we are going to electrify it because this is where we win ball games and lose ball games. Border Patrol. I like it. All right. We'll see if the next coach brings in the Border Patrol for the uh, USC Southern California pipeline of uh, recruits. All right. Well, Gerard, great stuff. We uh, Thanks for doing the team and recruiting all at one show and again i apologize for the lateness of this podcast it just it was a travel day for me for dan for coach hyde but gerard stepped up and uh we got the show done so i, I hope you, people enjoyed it and i hope you had fun with it gerard i did i enjoyed it. now and again opining on the team the guys that i covered four years ago three years ago now talking about them while they're actually at usc yeah it's a little bit different but thanks again and everyone else thank you very much for tuning into the peristyle podcast again apologize we couldn't get to all the questions if you leave a voicemail do so under a minute, please. If it's over a minute, it's going to be really hard to play on the podcast. So just be aware of that when you're leaving a voicemail. Time yourself. If you have to leave another one, that's fine. Just call back and leave it again, but shorter this time. Uh, thanks again for everyone for tuning in. We'll do a court, uh, armchair quarterback podcast this week as well, so stay tuned for that. And we'll talk to you on the regular podcast next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 